Well, tonight we are going to be in the book of Judges, and we are going to be um, looking at Judges chapter 18. We'll be looking at the entire chapter tonight, and uh, so it's uh, 31 verses, you can see there, and this is essentially the second half of the story. So the the first half of the story we looked at last week, which was Micah, um, he's living uh, in... Let me see if I've got a map up in here before I jump into this real quick. Just refresh our memories. So, um, so in that, um, every time I pull it up, I, I'm like, I need to zoom that in. So, um, but uh, that kind of aqua blue just above Judah is that Dan. Now that territory right there, that's where Dan was supposed to be. They didn't take that land, as we're going to be reminded of in the story tonight. They didn't take it. That's what was allotted to them, but they never took it. (laughs) And so they were kind of wandering around, and that's kind of how they get into the story. But around that area of the Danites, um, Ephraim, and the the northern end of Judah is what we've been dwelling in. And so Micah... um, Remember, he uh, this is really great guy who stole his mother's uh, like life savings, uh, and then um, and then uh, heard him uh, heard her utter a curse against whoever stole her uh, her retirement fund, and so he came back and said, "I heard you do that. Freak me out, uh, please. Uh, here's the money back." And so she said, uh, "Well, may the Lord bless you." And then and then after that, um, and then and then she says, "You know, let's you know let's." You know, basically, I want to celebrate and honor the Lord. So here's some of the money that you stole from me. I'm going to give to you, and I want you to go fashion an idol uh, out of it, and by which we will uh, worship the Lord. Which any uh, Jewish or Christian reader uh, will pick up on that, going, uh, "That's uh, violating one of the Big Ten, <laughs> at the very least here." And so, uh, and so, violating the second commandment specifically. And then, uh, and so he goes and he makes a, a an, an idol and sets up a shrine in his house, ordains one of his sons to be his own little priesthood, and then along comes. Along comes this Levitical priest, and uh, and this, and he's just wandering around, and he's not really happy where he's at. So, which is, he was from Judah, and so he comes up there and says, "Hey, I'm just looking around." And so he says, "Hey, why don't you come stay with me? I'll give you a nice place to live, and give you a salary. You can be my priest." And then, and the whole, and he agrees, and the whole story ends with uh, with Micah saying, "Now surely the Lord will bless me, because for not only do I have my shrine, I have a priest." Right, and so we ended with it's just this weird, bizarro world uh, um, in Israel uh, where people are just violating the law of God and believing that God is going to bless them for it. And so that's where we ended last week, and so now we're picking back up in the second half of that uh, text. And so um, I'll begin uh, with verse one of Judges chapter eighteen. Bring the text up on the screen here. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, uh, to the house of Micah, and lodged there uh, when they were... when they, were, uh, when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, Well, this is how Micah dealt with me, and he hired me, and, and I became his priest. And, and, and they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go, under which you go, on which you go, is under the eye of the Lord. 
And then the five men departed and came to, La- to Laish and uh, saw the people who were there, how they live in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and, and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtol, their, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And, you, and, and will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. And so 600 men from the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtol and went up and encamped in Kiriath-Jerim and Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that, these ho- that in these houses there's an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. And now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image and uh, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed uh, with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest of the house of one man or to be the priest of a tribe and a clan of Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. And so they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What's the matter with you, that you've come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods and I, and, and, that I made, and the priest, and go away? And what have I had left? How then, you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life and the lives of your household. The people of Dan went their way. When Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned their city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Bethrehob. Uh, then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan after the, after the name of, their, of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image uh, for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the, the captivity in the land. And so they set up Micah's carved image that he made, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, God's word is not boring. I'll tell you that much. 
I read a story recently about an old sailor who was kept getting lost at sea. His friends, out of their concern, bought him a compass. And so he would always know where he was going. And, uh, but almost immediately, he got lost at sea again, and he had to be rescued. When his friends found him, they, they, they brought him back to shore, and they said, why didn't you use the compass that we gave you? And he said, I tried to use it, but no matter how hard I tried to make it point north, it kept pointing southeast. As one author wrote about that story, sometimes people are so certain of themselves they will force their own personal orientations onto the compass. This is clearly what we see at work in the story of Micah, the Danites, and their idols. Here is the second half of Micah's story, as I mentioned earlier, and the results of his confidence that the Lord will surely bless him now that he has a shrine and an idol and a genuine Levitical priest. Of his own. Everyone seems so confident and strident in this story and their actions, and no one seems to understand that they are all very, very wrong in the eyes of the Lord. But the question we ask is is our world so different than Judges chapter 18? I would submit that never in history have a people, especially in the West, been been so sure of themselves and been encouraged to be so sure of themselves, to believe in themselves, no matter what. But what if they're wrong? What if morality isn't left up for each of one of us to decide for ourselves? What if following our hearts and discovering our true identity by the embracing of, uh, of a whole variety of d- different things, including sexual perversions, is not the actual way to happiness, as so many claim it to be? Noticeably, the author doesn't even make any comments of judgment upon these characters in this story in chapter 17 or chapter 18. Is, as as Delroth Davis wrote on this passage, our writer may appear to be dispassionate, but there are traces of acid in his ink. The author, in other words, seems to be content to let let the characters simply hang themselves by their own words and actions. And so we we look tonight first at this strange reenactment uh, that that Micah and, uh, sorry, that the Danites engage in. And then we, and then we'll, t- then we'll look at the bankruptcy of what uh, of syncretism, and we'll call, we'll explain what that is in just a moment. And then we'll conclude uh, by considering how error perpetuates and continues. And so, first, we uh, we observe this strange reenactment uh, with the tribe of Dan, and what uh, what I can call a, a poor man's spy mission from the book of Numbers. Now, a word about the Danites will be helpful here. The tribe of Dan was unfaithful to their calling to take the land that had been allotted to them, and as recorded earlier in the book of Judges. That means that all these years later, they're still wandering around looking for a place to live. Now, we're a mobile society, and so um, that can fly and drive and move uh, between states with relative ease, all right? I mean, yes, moving is annoying and inconvenient, as we've got two families that can attest to that right now, <laughs> that, um, uh, but, it's, uh, but imagine doing that in the ancient world, where there are no trucks. So, uh, and so uh, generally speaking, um, you didn't move from the land in which you were born unless you had lost everything. 
and, uh, or unless God was calling you out, specifically like God did with Abraham. And, uh, but God has not called the tribe of Dan out to search out another place for themselves. God has allotted them a, a, an area, and they have refused to take it. Dan, the, the, the tribe of Dan it has uh, repented. And I apologize already you know, for tonight. So, uh, so, so I'm not calling Dan out tonight, just to be clear. So, um, but, uh, but, the tri- but the tribe of Dan has not repented of their unbelief. They have not sought after God in faithfulness. Now, instead of heading to the actual land allotment that God has assigned for them, they're determined to follow their own hearts, to follow their own path, specifically a path of least resistance. So they send out five spies to seek a place uh, for them. And along the way, they come across Micah's house and discover he has a legit shrine. Now, uh, uh, insanely, the, the, the reader, the godly reader, um, it, it reads this, uh, how calmly uh, they, they ask for the Levite to inquire of God uh, by the idol. And you'll notice uh, that... Um, the, uh, the Levite's response sounds a little bit like a newspaper horoscope. Go in peace. The journey you are on is under God's eye. Well, what does that mean? Right? It seems like the Levite is hedging his bets. And, you know, he doesn't want to give them you know, this way or that way. And so, the, and, so, and so the spies, for their part, they go out and they spy out this Canaanite town. It's not an Israelite town. It's a Canaanite town um, that was both prosperous and vulnerable to attack. Now, the irony here of this passage is that the author is making us feel bad for the Canaanites, uh, even though they are wicked, but the wicked Danites are worse. Uh, when the people, uh, you know, and when the people report back, these five spies report back, it's almost, they seem to be met with a lack of enthusiasm, hence their question, will you do nothing again? They're just waiting for us. Come on, let's go. They even say that God has given it to them, uh, and it's interesting because the Danites never use the covenant name of God; they just use the general term El or Elohim, but they don't use Yahweh, the covenant name for God. And so there's, and that's just a linguistic hint that something's wrong here. Something's wrong with the Danites. Uh, and uh, but the reality is, the Danite spies are simply acting like Micah. Uh, Micah had the trappings of religion. And the Danites have the trappings of a holy mandate to take this particular city. But God did not say, worship me in any way you see fit. And he did not tell Dan to find any land that they saw fit. But here we need to diagnose the actual problem uh, that is pervading this text from last chapter to this chapter, which is the problem of religious syncretism. Uh, We are not... Dealing with just flat out rank idolatry here. Uh, Micah and the spies are not worshiping Marduk or sacrificing their children to Molech, these different pagan gods. Uh, Rather, they are violating the second commandment, wherein God says that he is not to be worshipped by human creation, statues, paintings, or otherwise. He, he doesn't, uh, God just doesn't have a thing against golden calves, because he just doesn't like cows for some reason, uh, or bulls. He, he, he a created manifestation uh, that, is, that is meant to uh, basically channel the worship of God through him, uh, through it, 
uh, for Yahweh is an abomination in his sight because the uncreated cannot be represented by the created. The, the living God, who is a being of pure life and act, cannot be represented by a lifeless dead thing. Yet if you ask these guys, they would tell you that they're simply worshiping the God of the Bible. And we see a similar problem today where there are many in the, who in the name of Christ will engage in all kinds of practices that are not prescribed by Scripture in the worship of God. And if you call them on it, even nicely, they, will, they might admit that, it, man, maybe we're a bit excessive, maybe we're going a bit overboard, but it's okay because we're sincere in our desire to worship God. But, uh, but, but what's interesting is everybody has their line for that. It's kind of where the line, you know, some people are into, into flag waving, some people are into barking like cats and dogs in the aisles, okay? Some people are into, um, uh, you know, running around and, and smacking people in the arm during the, during the singing. Like, there are, there are all kinds of stuff that people go and lines that will draw, all right? And I'm not saying that everyone needs to be a bunch of stiff Presbyterians, okay? That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But everybody has their line. They'll go, oh, well, that's just weird. That's just weird. And then we're just talking about preferences. So how do we sort through those preferences? Well, that's where we have to turn to the word of God. Sincerity didn't factor into the equation back in the golden half, the, the golden calf debacle back in Exodus 32, when Moses made them all grind that calf down into dust and to drink it so that the thing would be utterly defiled and destroyed. And it doesn't change the facts here. I want to be careful because I'm not trying to fear monger that the devil is hiding behind every rock, um, uh, every book, every movie or popular trend. But we do have to uh, have an issue in the broader evangelical church of self-professing Christians who will willingly mix pagan practices into their faith either because they don't know any better or they just don't think it's a big deal. And so, um, you know... a, a you know, a, a, a good hot topic here is the issue of like yoga. All right. Yoga is this big issue in, in the evangelical church because can you do it? Can you not? Some people are just like, well, I just like to stretch. And it's like, look, if, if you like to do yoga type stretches because it makes your lower back feel better and helps your sciatica, go for it. Knock yourself out. OK, um, but but there are but Christians need to understand that that. Yoga as a religious practice, it is a religious practice with the Hindu religion. And if you're going to a yoga session with a yoga instructor, unless they're just like, by the way, this is just secular yoga. <laughs> this is just glorified stretching and it just sounds fancy, so we call it yoga. Um, then, uh, then you're dealing, engaging in pagan worship practices. And so it's, it gets really hard and we have to navigate these issues and they're difficult. Um, but also what's often associated with yoga is, is meditation. And don't we love meditation as Christians? Not that kind, right? The kind of the Eastern transcendental med- meditation is where we empty our minds of all thoughts. We empty ourselves. Uh, whereas so I'm like, look, again, if, you, if you're going to take a few minutes and kind of breathe, and clear your mind, and just kind of a little stressed out, fine, do that, all right? That's not what we're talking about. Um, it's... Uh, it's um, but... Christian meditation is filling our minds. It's filling our minds with the word of God. It's filling our minds with the things of Christ and meditating on those, dwelling on those, letting those fill us. And so, um, and so, the, and, and so 
Uh, we have to be careful uh, with this stuff. We have to and be careful that we're not mixing other uh, things into religion. It, Christians talk about even sometimes to joke. Not, and again, somebody talks about jokingly. I'm not going to like crush. That's why we have to be careful. But if there are Christians who genuinely think karma is real and and use and uh, unthinkingly blend in talk, it talks about karma into their faith, and they talk about somebody getting karma, good karma, bad karma. There is no such thing as karma in the Christian religion. That is Hinduism. Again, that's being blended in together. Now, does the Bible say that you know, God will oftentimes bring someone's own wickedness back on their head? Sure, that's not karma. That's divine justice. That's God giving Haman what he deserved and hanging him on his own gallows. Right, in the book of Esther. Like that's, that's what he's doing. They're different things. So, and so we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to become heresy, hunter, heresy hunters, zealots, you know, going about smashing people uh, because they say the wrong word, um, trying to you know, purify uh, you know, the faith of every whiff of paganism. Um, because if you do that, then you end up in really weird, strange places. You know, in like what the late 80s, it ended with like, let's burn journey CDs, you know, and things like that. And you're like, no, if you're burning books and burning CDs, especially in this day and age, you have to like burn MP3 players. I don't know what you're going to do. Burn digital files. I'm not going to do it. All right. But you're going to end up in weird, strange places. And so you don't want to do that. But the blending of Christianity with false religions does occur. And our culture encourages us to do it constantly. And so we just need to be discerning and clear and biblical. So we've diagnosed the problem with Micah and the Danites. And now uh, we need to observe the, 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 the reality of the bankruptcy of syncretism in, in verses 11 through 26. And begin with, I think, a genuine question that we might ask is, can you really steal from a thief? Can you really steal from a thief? The tribe of Dan gathers 600 mighty warriors, which is kind of like a, a battalion of soldiers. And now considering the numbers we've seen in the book of Judges, it's not that many. It seems they've had a pretty uh, muted response to, for a call to arms. Um, but this, uh, this gathering was significant enough uh, that they, were, they named the place where they gathered as Mahana Dan, which means the camp of Dan. And uh, but as we will see, these warriors may be mighty physically, but spiritually they are wimps. Uh, and they go to, along uh, here with the five spies mentioned uh, here, and uh, and the five spies as they go by Micah's house, they say, "Hey, uh, you know the house over there? It's a random guy's house. He's got a shrine. He's got a household gods, an idol, and a Levite." I'm not going to say what we should do, but six hundred of you. You know, they're just kind of dropping some really strong hints, right? And so, and so the 600 men stand outside the gate just observing, right? Not intimidating anyone at all. And uh, while well, the five men went inside and uh, relieved Micah of his burden of all those goods. Ironically, they steal the image which was made from money that he had stolen from his own mother previously. Uh, and the, when the priest uh, mildly objects, like, what are you, what are you doing? You know? Uh, and they, they tell him to basically shut his mouth if he knows what it's good for him. And then they offer him a job, right? And so, and uh, now this Levite, uh, who we have been told had become a spiritual father to Micah and, is, and like a personal son to Micah, is more than happy to take the Danites up on their offer, even if it is one that he can't refuse. And after they run off with Micah's gods and his, and his priest, 
uh, Micah learns uh, himself what has happened. He gathers some of the local men and runs after them. And the Danites pretty much figured this. That's why they put all the stuff in front. And they were in the back because they were waiting for Micah and his, and his buddies to catch up to them. And they were going to take care of that. Uh, my dad managed um, one of the most dangerous... He managed a, a circuit city in one of the most dangerous cities um, in America um, at one point. Uh, um, it was uh, Inglewood. California, and, uh, and so it's, it was so notoriously dangerous that it was mentioned regularly by gangster rappers in their, in their like 90s rap videos. You know, they're, they're mentioning this, this city because this is where it was at, a very deadly place. And, um, and uh, quite a few of uh, my dad's employees were in, in, in the gang. And, uh, and so, well, one of the, uh, a gang member, not an employee gang member, but a gang member came in and just took a boombox stereo and just walked out the door with it. And so he went... Walking out, went after the guy and walked around, went around the corner and there was the stereo, there was the guy, and there was his gang. And they're all sitting there and he was setting it up and he looks at my dad and goes, need something? And my dad looked at him and looked at the stereo and looked at the gang and said, just want to make sure you're happy with it. All right, I just want you, you enjoy. And uh, turned around and went back <laughs> because he wanted to live. And... Um, uh, Micah has a similar reaction here. He, is, uh, he may be a fool, but he's not a complete fool. Uh, he, uh, he, he tracks them down, demands they return his goods, and, and the warriors turn and threaten him. If he doesn't pike down, then some bitter men of their lot will kill him and his whole household. And Micah sees the situation and cuts his losses and leaves. And what does it show us? Well, it shows us the reality that syncretism in the end will rob you blind. First, take note of the helplessness of Micah's gods. Uh, this, uh, this is the traces of that acid that uh, Deroff Davis mentioned before. Over and over again, the gods of Micah and his idol uh, that are, that's dedicated to the Lord are portrayed laughably and derisively as these helpless things that can only be carried and moved and stolen by one person or another, these helpless gods. They can, can do nothing for themselves. Uh, and, um, and, and we note in verse 24, Micah reveals the situation when he says, You stole the gods that I made. That key phrase. The gods that I made. The gods that you and I can make are not gods. They are merely expensive paperweights that can be stolen. And further, we see in the Levite the problem with mercenary ministers because they're always just looking for the better deal. Household gods can be stolen and mercenary priests can be bought. One scholar wrote that the problem of ambition and opportunism in ministry has a 3,000-year-old history. We can see it right here. But Micah's question in verse 24 is incredibly sad. What have I left? What have I left? It reveals the heart of the matter and why syncretism is so awful. Because, uh, because it's bad at first and foremost because it robs God of his glory and his, wor- and his rightful worship. But for those engaged in it, in the end, they're the ones who lose everything. Micah thought he had figured out the way to secure God's blessing. But he received anything but God's blessing. Rather, he lost so much. Even though he still has his home, he still has his life, but just barely. And secretism will rob all those who engage in it 
uh, not only not only physically, as in this case, but most devastatingly, spiritually. We also confirm here that Micah has not just the image that he made, but he, I don't know if you noticed it, but he has household gods in addition to it. So Micah is an idolater. He does worship other gods and the God of Israel. And so he, and so he violates not just the second commandment, but the first one too. Uh, false worship of every kind will fail us in the end. And those who commit themselves to it will be asking the same question that Micah asks. What have I left after our false gods have failed us? So finally, tonight, we see how error is perpetuated, verses 27 to 31. Because a lot of times, you, kind of, you see something crazy happen, you're okay, okay, I could see how someone could get spun around, convince themselves of it, and kind of do this crazy thing. But, but how did it happen twice? How did it happen again? How is it still going on? And as outsiders, we ask those questions. But we definitely see here the enshrinement of theological error with the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan, whose response in learning of Micah's the idolatry should have been to execute the justice required by the law of God, instead saw an opportunity for themselves and took Micah's idols and made them his, their own. Then they attacked the city of Laish and, uh, and, uh, and they were driven, we know, by, not by a divine mandate from God, but by practical opportunism to enrich themselves. They took it, they burned it, they rebuilt it, and lived in it. And they named the city after the tribal founder, Dan, in the place that God had not given them. The place that God had not assigned them. But they named it after Dan, so that gave it more legitimacy, right? Because that was their ancestor. And then we're told that they set up the idol for themselves, and the Levites served them as a priest, whose sons served the tribe of Dan as priests all the way until the captivity of Israel in the exile. Now that's a key note, because that tells you a little bit about when this book was written or when it was edited, which was, it had to have been after the exile. And so, um, so the Danites take the error of Micah, the, the error of Micah, the idolatry of Micah, and what do they do with it? They enshrine it. They expand it. They build a temple for it. And then the penny drops. The author reveals a little detail about a character that's kind of in the background of this whole story, the Levite. We finally learn his name. Did you know his name was Jonathan? Did you know who Jonathan's granddaddy was? Moses. Moses, Mr. Golden Calf, grinding it down, making him drink it. Mr. Anti-idolatry himself, his grandson, is the one who did this. How far Moses' line has fallen in two generations. Jonathan Edwards is still considered one of the greatest minds ever produced in America. He also had a lot of children, 14 of them, and most of them lived beyond their teenage years. Didn't always happen. And from those children came statesmen, you know, judges. Uh, I think the eighth president of Yale uh, was uh, one, of his grand, uh, one of his grandsons. Uh, he even had a grandson that was a vice president. Um, that his name was Aaron Burr. 
So, um, but uh, you may not remember Aaron Burr for being vice president. You might remember Aaron Burr for something else. Namely, shooting Alexander Hamilton in a duel. And, uh, but also, did you know that he was accused of treason? Not for that, but for other things. And it was always kind of a haze. I weren't sure if he was really a traitor or not. He was also a grandson of Jonathan Edwards. We are reminded here that earthly success is not the guarantee of divine blessing. Nor is past godliness of previous generations a guarantee of future godliness. And finally, we are told something else. Something else is revealed here. That the house of God was at Shiloh the entire time. The tabernacle is available. It's there. But no one is using it. It's not far away. It's basically in the kind of center part of Israel. But all the time it's there. Even after David comes along. Even after Solomon comes along. We are told that that idolatry persisted in the tribe of Dan. The syncretism persisted all the way until the exile. All the way. In Jonathan, the Levite, the grandson of Moses, we see how corrupted the nation of Israel has become spiritually. In time, Dan, that city, would become the place where Jeroboam would install one of his golden calves that would help lead the northern kingdom astray. And this leads us to have to face some hard realities. The connection here with Jonathan and his grandfather Moses um, uh, was so offensive to Jewish scribes that, uh, um, and I didn't have a slide for it, but uh, if you're not familiar with how Jewish vowels work, um, they didn't have vowels in their text. Uh, in the Hebrew. But then eventually they realized the younger generation was losing the ability to speak Hebrew because it was learned tonally. And so, um, and so, and they, but they don't want to amend the text to add vowels. So they came up with this ingenious scheme called vowel pointing where they put little dots and lines around the Hebrew characters um, and to, to create the vowels so you know how to pronounce it. And so, uh, so very helpful, very cool. Well, this, uh, this was, you don't do it with consonants, though. You don't do it with letters, just with the vowels. Well, this was, th- this idea of connecting Jonathan, this Levite, uh, with, with Moses, the Moses, was so offensive to Jewish scribes that they, that they went in there. They couldn't help themselves, and they just stuck an N, like in there, like, a, like one of the vowels. Just stuck an N in there to change Moses into Manasseh who was the wicked, evil, um, final king of the southern kingdom. And they were like, and it was just, and it was in honor of, it was to honor kind of in protection of Moses' reputation <laughs> to like, move to like, no, 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 this isn't the grandson of Moses, the grandson of Manasseh, right? But they all knew it was Moses. And we were tempted to try to do those types of things when we find out uh, um, evil, bad things, things that we don't want to see about our own church or our denomination or our histories. And we just, we, but, uh, and, and, you know, the history can be recent, it can be not. Um, but we're not going to do any good by, you know, changing how words are spelled or by trying to whitewash things, forget them, erase them, uh, hide them away. Uh, it, it's, it, the author here is warning people, the people of God, the church, against idolatry and syncretism. He is showing us where it leads. It leads us to religious and moral confusion at best. And as we will soon see, to, uh, to anarchy 
and violence. And so, and, and he's showing us that, that godliness of one generation doesn't last all over. Each generation must take up the faith for itself. So what is the proper response here? The proper response is the same thing that makes up the daily Christian life. Repentance and faith. We need to examine ourselves. Examine our church. To see if there are ways in our lives uh, that grieve the Lord. Ways that we perhaps may have imbibed uh, uh, and adopted a secular culture uh, a, um, and, uh, and into, our, into, into our very theology. Uh, we must uh, live in the world, and, but as Jesus said, but not be consumed by it. Or taken captive by it. And we have to be careful because uh, as Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat but it does rhyme. It does reflect what's come before. And as it rhymes, we need to listen. We need to pay attention. We need to be diligent to the word of God. To attend to it. And to apply it and to live it out by the Spirit's grace and mercy. Because indeed, the Word of God is our compass. And many will try to force that compass to point in whatever direction they're already going or they want to go. But our response as the people of God is not to force the Bible, to force the Scriptures, with, if we use scalpels or erasers or just close it up and close our ears and just hold it and say, hey, God loves me, no matter what. But our response is to be humility and submission to the Lord in accordance to His Word. Our answer to the Lord, His calling, is to be the same answer young Samuel will give when the Lord calls him. Yes, Lord, your servant is listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You reveal to us even the ugliness of the life of Israel. That we don't look back on Israel and just shake our heads and, uh, and, and think what fools they were and that we know better. Lord, we know how our own hearts can, can, give, can give way. How the, 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 uh, the ways of the world can seem so attractive. The ways of, uh, of, of giving everything over to politics or, uh, or just the pursuit of material goods or power or, um, uh, or, or just relationships and reputation. Whatever it is, Father, that we are tempted to make into our king, to put at our center to these things that we may not have, little statues, but we are tempted to make into gods in our lives. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would hear your truth, that we would hear your word, that we would indeed follow the commandment of Christ to be in the world but not of the world, that we would not be conformed to the world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as the Apostle Paul says, that we would take, that we would take every thought captive for the sake of Christ. And that we would not be strung along by, by every wind of, 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 of doctrine that passes by. Father, give us wisdom. Give us grace when we fail. Lord, because we will fail. We have. And Lord, lead us always in repentance and faith, renewal. That we may walk more faithfully. And that we may give a faithful testimony to your goodness 
and your love, that we may worship the true God who is not represented by statues, and he cannot be represented by mere statues, but can only be represented by his own son, the glorious and clearest revelation of himself, the true word of God in his very person, Jesus Christ. May we look to him as we look to you. May we worship you rightly. May we walk in joy as we hold out the word of life and shine in the darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand now and respond to God's word as we sing together our, our final hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour, hymn 391.